Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man whose business is always open for business. Here is the captain. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. We are still sipping on a fine new england india pale ale called jewels from canned heat craft beer company if you like citrus this is a good one with a nice orange sweetness to the finish nice can art as well it's got a very cool neon green thing going on abv 6.8 percent garage grade four out of five bottle caps and here's a little call to action out there peeps check your spam box There's a chance that you might have an email from the colonel. And if you have an email from yours truly, that means I'm waiting on a reply so I can shout you out on a future show. So check the old spam box. Yeah, B-W-E-R-R-U-N, beer run. If you need more True Crime Garage for your earballs, check us out on Patreon or through the Apple Podcast subscription. And colonel, that is enough of my business being open up for business. All right, business. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. For every mystery, there is some, somewhere, who knows the truth. Perhaps that someone was watching. Perhaps it's you. Join me. Watch closely. Perhaps you may be able to help me solve a mystery. Paul Diamato, attorney, was hired by the Valente family to represent them in hopes of getting a verdict that would change the manner of death ruling in the death of their daughter, 18-year-old Tiffany Valente. And this is straight from the DiamatoLawFirm.com website. Right underneath the hashtag Justice for Tiffany, it reads, It has been more than seven years since Diane and Stephen Valente were told by authorities that their 18-year-old daughter Tiffany had taken her own life, struck and killed by a New Jersey Transit Atlantic City rail line train close to midnight on July 12, 2015, near mile marker 45, five miles from their May's Landing home. Law enforcement officials believe Tiffany walked the five miles over roadways that had no street lights and for most of it in her bare feet. Tiffany suffered from nectophobia, a fear of the dark. The parents, along with numerous forensic experts, have consistently labeled the suicide determination the product of an investigatory rush to judgment, and they've appealed through their attorney, Paul R. Diamato, and his law firm to have the case reopen to no avail. But the Valente's attorney, Diamato, and many others in and beyond New Jersey believe there's still hope for hashtag justice for Tiffany and that the new Unsolved Mysteries Netflix episode, Mystery at Mile Marker 45, will be the catalyst for new information leading to answers in the lingering troubling question about Tiffany's death. Was she the victim of murder? Was her death an accident? The victim of a prank that got fatally out of hand? 
Why was her death so quickly ruled a suicide without first conducting a full-scale autopsy? There is reward information available in this case. And last I saw, Captain, we were talking $40,000 reward to help solve the 2015 suspicious death of Tiffany Valente. And if you have information, they want you to reach out to the family's attorney. Again, that's diamatolawfirm.com. And there's also reward at justice for TIFF, T-I-F-F dot com. Like I said, last time I saw the reward was up to $40,000. Now, we give that brief description there to one, bring you up to speed. And two, because the family thinks that something happened to their daughter between the time she left their home and when she was found and they were notified of her death. Well, we have her cell phone, so don't we have like a cell phone record of who she spoke with? We do, and that's where things get very interesting. Her family is of the belief of a... There's a few different theories that they're working with. That maybe she went to the end of their driveway. Remember, she's afraid of the dark. They don't think that she would have went off walking on her own, not for any great distance anyway, in the middle of the night. So they think that maybe she went out to the end of their driveway, down the street a little bit, on foot, and was going to meet a friend there and then got picked up by a friend. Now, some have suggested maybe she gets into a vehicle with someone she thought she could trust, and then things got bad quickly, and they tossed, whoever she got the ride with, tossed the phone out of the vehicle and took Tiffany away. Now, if you want to go to the ruling side of it, the suicide ruling, I guess the belief would be that she decided to toss her phone and just keep on walking that night. There are other people that suggest something that's even... It's To me, it's a little more information, and it might be a better theory. There are some that have suggested maybe the cell phone was later dropped near the family's property and strategically placed there to throw people off. Well, because think about this. She gets into a vehicle with somebody. They're driving her around. Maybe they get out of the vehicle with her, or she just gets out of the vehicle. She gets out of the vehicle, you still have her items, so then you go drop off all of her items in a location. So at least those items aren't in your car anymore. Exactly. And the situation here being that something happens to Tiffany and they want to discard these items. We talked yesterday about the shoes and the headband being found. This would be about a mile from the family's home, and there's no way that those items were at the scene where her body was found when the uh, incident took place. And so we know that for a fact, which is which is so bizarre because, again, you got to go to the fact that her feet do not show signs of her traveling that terrain for that distance before she was later found. Yeah, you know, a lot of people seem to put a lot of weight to that. To me, I'm not a foot expert. So some people walk around in their bare feet all the time. So they would have tougher feet. Uh, I can't walk that much, you know, on on uh, concrete or gravel or anything. I always have to have shoes on. So I wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't catch me without shoes outside. And this area is described as sharp rocks, broken glass, 
rough wood. Now, I don't know if they're embellishing a little bit to push forward their case. I've not traveled that this this tr- made that trek uh, on foot or otherwise, so I cannot tell you exactly what that terrain would be like. Now, we do have a situation where we talked about possible evidence that may have been not collected at the scene, right? And one thing we do know for a fact is that shortly after her death, we have one of her uncles, one of Tiffany's uncles, along with what would be her cousin, go out there and they are looking and retrieving items that were not collected or maybe just not found or located by the authorities when they had the scene roped off. And these items include a bracelet that was returned to Tiffany's mother, Diane, but also included things like pieces of her skull and jawbone. So I would suggest that the, I mean, those are significant items that should have been collected at the scene. Again, it's either not collected or not located by authorities to collect them. It's not an easy scene. I I, I do want to remind everybody about that. It's, this is not an easy situation. Just the destructive, incredibly destructive nature of this incident. An accident, foul play, homicide, suicide, whatever you want to label it. The destruction of any of that taking place here by train is going to make it very difficult for those to locate certain items, especially out in the dark. Now, maybe they should have roped off this scene longer. And again, that's what the family's argument is, that this was a quick rush to judgment and they don't like the ruling. But just because the family doesn't like the ruling doesn't mean that it's not true. And I I think with, like you said, a very difficult situation because you have the destruction. You also have, you know, this is basically train tracks in the middle of the woods. So you have a you know, very odd terrain. And then on top of that, you know, this is happening at night. Again, they probably should have came back several times during the day. And I think they should have done several steps because we've seen this in other cases and they might've been suicides, but if you don't cross your T's and dot your I's and do your due diligence, it's almost like you're not giving you need to do that. You need to be extra careful with this because this is a hard, this is going to be a hard ruling for the family to accept. Well, it's not just that. If there was foul play involved in this young woman's death, there's nobody investigating it because of the ruling of exactly. the manner of death. So exactly. when it's ruled a suicide, they will never investigate this as a homicide. Now, one thing we have pointed out, there are many jurisdictions out there that when they respond to a death, that it, it, regardless of what it ends up, their findings end up being, many jurisdictions work under the protocol that until we find evidence that it is that suggests otherwise, this is a homicide. Right. And I wish that that would have taken place here, because now with this ruling, nobody's ever going to investigate this as a homicide. So you may have a killer or people that were involved in the demise of this young woman out there that will never be caught. They will never be identified because there's nobody working it. Now, 
some people are probably saying, well, maybe I don't see a crime here. That's fine. That's what we're trying to do. Lay out the information and let you form an opinion. But I will remind you all of this. Last year, we covered the Boardman murders, the murders of three young males in Boardman, Ohio, that took place in the 70s. The third death was ruled by the, I believe he was not just pathologist, he was an actual doctor, was ruled to be natural causes. The victim had diabetes and and slipped into a diabetic coma. Okay, now that case would have never been investigated as a murder or a homicide, but the police, the Boardman police said, you know what, we don't like your ruling doctor. We see obvious evidence that there is foul play and that somebody is responsible for this boy's death. That boy is David Evans. 12 years old, David Evans. He's he's abducted and killed is what we later learn. The person responsible was a man named Joseph Hill. They connected this serial killer to that young boy's death with Joseph Hill's DNA this year. This year, 2023, so almost 50 years later, we had a bad ruling by a medical examiner, a police department that refused to believe it and continued to work it as a homicide, and they solved it almost 50 years later. So these things do exist. Yeah, and I I don't understand. It seems like in our society and and also in the true crime world, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that... Everybody just wants to be right. Like they, I, you know, whether it's the Delphi investigation, whether it's John Benet Ramsey, whether it's Mara Murray, whether it's Brian Schaefer, people come to me with opinions and they're willing to die on that sword and not listen to anybody on anything. What's so wrong with law enforcement going, hey, our initial findings, you, you discuss this only with the family, our Initial findings is that we believe that this is suicide. Now we're going to take some time to try to prove ourselves wrong. Do the work. Well, and that's why most jurisdictions will arrive on scene and say, until we have evidence to suggest otherwise, this is a homicide investigation. Right. Because then you can't really go wrong. It's easier to... Look, all the family is asking for here is that this be ruled a suspicious death or an indetermined death. And so let's let's get into some of this information because we got a lot to get through here, Captain. This is from Louise Hausman. She's a retired senior medical investigator who was, yes, hired by the family and, yes, hired by the family's attorney. So she does have a dog in the fight. We don't know her, so we cannot say that she went into this impartial at all and then made a ruling. I'm hoping that that is the case, that she went in there to give an expert opinion based off of the evidence that she could review and went in there impartially and arrived at this conclusion. But what she's stating here is that since September 21, 2016, she has had several opportunities to read reports and interviews by employees of the New Jersey Transit Police Department, the Atlantic County Prosecutor's Office, and the Regional Medical Examiner's Office. She goes on to say that she has visited the scene where Tiffany Valenti was struck by a New Jersey Transit train and has reviewed all photographs that were taken by investigators regarding Tiffany's death. And she goes on to say all these items that she's reviewed and the the long, she went on a very long process of reviewing this case. 
much longer than the medical examiner did. And what we have here is she stating that it is her opinion that the medical examiner arrived at the conclusion of suicide manner of death is suicide simply based off of verbal and writings by the engineer, the train engineer. So making this determination based off of nothing other than the engineer statement, the engineer doesn't know the person that's dead on the tracks, doesn't know anything going on in their life prior to, doesn't know anything about the evidence, doesn't know about the missing shoes and headband. You got to make your ruling off of a totality of the evidence. And I'm not saying that the medical did not. I'm saying it is this um, medical examiner, retired medical examiner's opinion that the medical examiner made that determination simply off of that engineer's statement. Now, this senior medical investigator, retired Hausman, is reviewing the case and arrived at the conclusion that this should be up for review, that they should take into consideration and label this a suspicious death or manner of death indetermined. Because I think most will agree, especially once we get through this, that there are reasons, there are things that a logical individual could arrive at the conclusion of suicide, but there's other reasons to suggest other that something more sinister may be at play here. She goes on to state that it is highly unlikely that Tiffany Valente, a very accomplished 18-year-old female athlete, walked barefoot from her home on Tilton Road along Poma Road to the railroad tracks and then walked over a mile alongside the tracks to where Tiffany's body came in contact with the train. So that's, we get a distance there, Captain. It's a mile from the time that she would have been on a road. She would have been walking along the train tracks for a mile before she arrived at the location where her body came in contact with the train. Like we said, there's no evidence that she was impaired, but it makes you wonder, like, is, is there a possibility that she just passed out on the, the tracks? I don't know why somebody would do that, but I, I, I've, well, that she cites that. So, here we go. Death by train is extremely unusual method of suicide to be contemplated by anyone, especially a female teenager with no history of emotional instability. The loud sound of an approaching train is much more likely to invoke a flight response in a sober individual, which we know toxicology says she was in fact sober. Had Tiffany wanted to commit suicide, she could have walked in front of a car on a heavily traveled highways of Tilton Road or Route 30. The toxicology report from the medical examiner's office was negative for drugs and alcohol. I, and I agree completely with that statement. She's the expert, so you don't need me to agree. One thing we need to point out here, Captain, is the engineers, both engineer statements have changed. Okay. And well, that, I love it when people's stories change. Well, I'm going to give them a little, I'm going to show them a little mercy. No, no mercy. Well, not in this dojo. If you hit somebody with your car, I would, it would be logical to think that you might be experiencing some trauma and some shock of your own. Yes. And in the moment, maybe not be able to give a clear statement. 
and maybe you filled in some of the blanks because you felt that you that you had to give a statement at that time. Right. And then later your statement changed. And so the the senior engineer who is teaching the student engineer the short we can give the short version of of how his statement changed. Originally the the student engineer says that he saw the trespasser, which is what they labeled Tiffany as trespasser who dove right in front of the train as the train approached. The senior engineer backs up that statement. Then later the senior engineer changes his statement to saying that his back was turned before impact, meaning that he did not see the trespasser dive in front of the train, but he saw impact. No, he didn't see anything. He didn't see, well, I mean, we're talking not, not even a second, man. Like it, it's, uh, not even a split second, but between the time of the, the, the person diving in front of the train to impact, it would be so incredibly quick, lightning fast. The train's traveling 80 mile an hour. This guy's saying, when this happened, my back was turned. Initially backed up the student engineer. Later changes it to my back was turned. And these employees probably feel completely awful. And just a side note, yes, there was, I believe, a little over 60 passengers. They weren't in a position that that they were able to be eyewitnesses to this event. That's correct. The only witnesses believed to be, and this is based off of the transit police interviews with everybody on that train, is there were so there were three train personnel that were interviewed of the three we have two engineers are the only listed as the only witnesses and we as we just pointed out one of those engineers statement changed and our medical examiner houseman she's going to say tiffany was struck by the train at 23 10 hours so that's 11 10 at night on July 12th, the medical examiner arrived on the scene about about two hours, a little less than two hours later. According to the medical examiner's report, it says that the statements differ greatly by these engineers that were later made by the transit personnel charged with the operation of the train that night. So that's not in question. We, we have... The original medical examiner and this individual who's reviewing everything both agree that the statements changed greatly is the word that's used here. And these are the reasons why the family questioning this outcome is makes a lot of sense. There's so many red flags. She's afraid of the dark. Did she get picked up by somebody? Well, why was her phone in this location? Why were her, her shoes in this other location? What would she be doing walking along the train tracks. Then you find out that there's items left by law enforcement. Why are they so quick to rush to judgment? Now we have two engineers. One of them is changing their story completely. It's enough of a reason to, if you're law enforcement, to go, hey, well, we we understand where you're coming from. We're going to leave this open. We're not going to make a ruling on it until we... I feel like we're 100% sure what of what happened. Right. So here's the short of how these statements by the student engineer change. Okay. So initially, 
what is told is that the trespasser darted out or dove in front of the train and then it was struck by the head of the train. And this will change to a statement that goes like this. As I come closer, approximately a quarter of a mile away or a little closer than that, I noticed that it was in fact a human being. He's talking about he had the headlights on on bright and auxiliary lights on as well and could see something up ahead. So he's already blowing the horn. And he says, as he got closer, I could in fact see that it was a human being in a crouched position in dark clothing. Well, that's not the description of what she was wearing at all. And the engineer goes on to say, a, I'm blowing the horn, a really long horn, just to get their attention, you know, just to let them know, hey, I'm traveling pretty fast. I was traveling approximately 80 miles an hour maximum authorized speed, 79 perhaps. And as I'm getting closer, the individual in the black clothing stands up and I immediately recognize that it's a female. I keep blowing my horn as I'm, as I'm approaching closer, the individual stands up, faces toward the gouge of the track or towards the track. And as I'm approaching closer, probably within like five seconds of passing her, she jumps, she dives in front of the train to the lower portion of the cab car. I was operating from the cab car and I noticed, and I'm still blowing my horn. I shout immediately because you know, it was a first experience for me. We hit her. I see matter go everywhere. And then I placed the train, the train immediately into emergency brake application. The reason why we need to have this statement underline and make mental note of the, the statement of, I see matter go everywhere. We talked about without getting too much into the weeds and too much detail here. We talked about the trauma and the destruction to the body, right? Limbs severed, cut or ripped different descriptions, but those are the descriptions of the limbs. There was severe trauma and damage to the skull area. We already talked about the uncle and the cousin collecting pieces of that part of her body later after the police had left the scene. If somebody were to do something to this young woman, you could kill her with a gun, an axe, a knife, strangulation, and after being run over by this train, place her body on those tracks, and it would show, you would see no sign of that. That that would be complete a complete mystery to the medical examiner. And that's why it's called a mystery at mile marker 45. Let's take a quick beer break. All right, we are back. Cheers, mates. Onward and upwards. Cheers to you, Colonel. Cheers to you, Captain. We need to circle back into something that we left off with on yesterday's show, and that was the bruise on the arm that sparked the visit of Child Protective Services to the Valente home. So Tiffany has this bruise on her arm, and after talking to Child Protective Services, her mother, Diane, admits, look, we had an argument Things got a little rough. 
had a bit of a dust up here and I punched her in the arm and that's why my daughter had a bruise. Okay. Nobody wants to hear that in a report. Nobody wants to hear uh, an adult punching a, a child. Now keep in mind, Tiffany is six foot two or six foot three by every report out there. Uh, and she would have been 17 years old at the time of the incident. I'm not excusing that type of behavior. I don't think anybody should ever do physical harm to one another, but I will tell you something that, that we've, that I told you before on this show, I had several long conversations with some suburban police officers a couple of years ago. And one thing that I found fascinating was I was talking about domestic violence or house calls. And I wanted to know, you know, how, how many house calls do you get in relation to obvious violence or theft or robbery or something on the streets or at a business? And the officers told me that the overwhelming majority of their calls are domestic calls. And of course, immediately I picture some drunk husband slapping his wife. And they said, no, most of our calls are domestic calls. And most of them are mothers and teenage daughters who are in a rather heated argument. And either somebody else in the family calls the police because things are getting crazy or the daughter calls the police or the mother calls the police. They said that is the majority of our calls. Again, I'm not explain. I'm not trying to excuse any of this type of behavior. I'm just saying that what is being presented as a huge red flag doesn't seem so big in retrospect when you cross-reference that with what we know. Now, so we do know in that situation, look, we can get, let's get very detailed here. So this medical examiner is doing a review and says that no one from the medical examiner's office, because we need to call into question the mental and emotional state of the decedent. And this medical examiner is saying no one from the medical examiner's office has ever interviewed T- Tiffany's parents or sisters ever. Not, not, not the day of the day after the week after, according to this report ever. And they go on to say that when she worked at the Atlantic County medical examiner's office, it was mandatory under their policy and procedures to interview the decedent's family as part of the investigation. Well, let's dive more into this. Uh, basically, it's an abuse allegation with the bruise on Tiffany's arm. Right. And let's keep in mind that the mother does admit to punching Tiffany in the arm. So it's not like we're trying to cover anything up here. And so in that report, what we have is this. It states, Tiffany's relationship with her mother in 2014 was strained. Diane Valenti, the mother, admitted she had become short-tempered, but attributed this to menopausal changes. Remember, the, this accusation of abuse or, or sending the services out there took place in 2014. It says, in 2014, one of Tiffany's teachers saw a bruise on her arm and contacted DYFS. The case was investigated who visited the home three times and spoke to all family members and even speaking to the sisters. The caseworker suggested Diane and Tiffany undergo counseling because they were having communication problems at the time. It's Uh, not that uncommon for teenagers to not be communicating well with their parents. You mean mean that 
You mean that teenagers don't get along with their parents? Well, look, we've all been there. You, you, you turn 17, 18, you start thinking you know everything, and really you're just probably a, a do-mass, you know? This is straight from the Atlantic Care Summary Report. Mother admits to punching her in the arm after an argument. Client, that is Tiffany, is referred to as the client. Client has been making poor decisions lately, smoking cannabis with friends, skipping class after her grandfather's death, and taking money from mother's bank account. And they do clearly state here, granted access by mother. So she already she had access to the bank account, just using it improperly. Client, Tiffany, is a good student, athlete, and has clear future goals. Client reports she is aware of the poor judgment and feels she has learned her lesson. So mom is admitting she's wrong. Tiffany's admitting that she is wrong as well, that she's learned her lesson and was just being stupid and immature, her own words per the report. Mother and client have difficulty communicating but are otherwise a stable family. Client denies suicidal tendencies, homicidal tendencies, denies anxiety, and denies depression. Mother acknowledged not being able to move on from the incidents due to her anxiety. Family accepted the suggestion to work on communication in the home. Mother will seek independent support if needed. Return to care if needed as there is no evidence of psychiatric disorder. As such, case was not accepted. So this was reviewed, investigated. They found no trouble in the home. They found no signs of abuse. And they they found what is described as stable family. So it wasn't like this wasn't looked into. And then we have more information about this relationship. Remember we said yesterday that a relationship had ended. Well, everything that's in this report suggests that it was a mutual ending of that relationship. And that not only was it mutual, but Tiffany had started to move on. She was already talking to another interest, talking to somebody that she was about having a relationship with this other person. And just, again, to go back to the abuse claims, these organizations that look into these, they're going to do their due diligence. They're going to make sure that they feel confident that when they walk away, that child is going to be safe. Yes, there were three visits. There were multiple interviews with family members, something that the medical examiner that ruled it a suicide did not do. And on top of that, there was a counseling session attended by mother and daughter. Well, let's dive back into the information we know of the cell phone. Yes, and I think this is incredibly interesting to me here because let's go into this with with knowing a couple facts here. No one has ever come forward saying that they offered Tiffany a ride, that they saw her walking that night. There was no ring doorbell camera footage, simply safe camera footage, ADT residential camera footage showing her walking. So however she got there, the authorities say she walked there. The family says maybe something else happened. Now, this cell phone is very interesting. Remember, she goes, she walks away, storms off at approximately 930. Her father finds the cell phone at 11, approximately 11 o'clock. 
So an hour and a half later. Those times are key before we get into this information. So this is what Louise Hausman found. And her statement is, if there is one thing a teenager tends to cling to, it's their cell phone. Anyone with a teenager knows their cell phone becomes an appendage. It is highly suspicious Tiffany did not retain her cell phone after she left her residence. It is much more likely she would have blocked her mother's text or silenced the phone rather than willingly dispose of the cell phone in the brush by the end of her driveway. Many people were searching for Tiffany on foot and in open vehicles. So note that the, the family is texting and calling her at some point that night, trying to figure out where she is. Right. Phone records reveal many tried calling her cell phone continually to the point where her phone received a call almost every minute or two from various friends and family. Yet no one heard her cell phone ring, despite the fact it was found by her father only a few yards from the family driveway. That's, that's quite interesting. Now, it could have been in vibrate mode or silent mode. Was it purposely placed in the location by someone later in the night? Or was this where Tiffany dropped it as she walked away at 928 p.m. that night. The phone was turned over to the Atlantic County Prosecutor's Office Major Crimes Unit on July 29th by a detective. The following is a statement provided to this medical examiner by Crystal, who is Tiffany's one of Tiffany's sisters. So the sister said she examined, did an examination of the downloaded data from Tiffany's cell phone. And this statement is, it is Crystal's belief that the data shows the cell phone was in use after Tiffany walked away from the home and before the cell phone was found by her father. Here we go. Quote, there is some evidence that I have found in Tiffany's phone that raises a question of how and who. There was a call from, I will, I'll change the name to JH, to Tiffany. Note the time here, Captain and everybody out there in listener land, 10.39 p.m. This is on the night that she died. Phone is found at approximately 11. She left at approximately 9.30. This call comes in at 10.39 p.m. on July 12, 2015. It was answered for 24 seconds. Nobody says they were with Tiffany that night. Nobody says they gave her a ride. Nobody admits to seeing her walking that night. Yet this information says that at 10.39 p.m. that night, Tiffany or someone else answered that phone. And there was a call for 24 seconds. 24 seconds, not a lot of time, but enough time to tell somebody where you're at to have them pick you up. It certainly raises some questions. Again, if Tiffany didn't answer that phone, who did? Right. So who had Tiffany's phone? Yeah, so many things don't make sense. And again, it's found by her father just a few yards from their driveway, from the driveway of Tiffany's home. Now, listen to this. It doesn't stop there. There it was also data usage in Tiffany's phone that shows someone was on her phone in an app that uses a large amount of data at 10.42 p.m. on the same night. There is another time before that at 10.23 p.m. that shows data usage as well, 
but not as much. This is Tiffany's sister saying that this indicated to me that Tiffany would not have had her phone being she was miles away and it being close to the time of her death. Okay, so what cannot happen, what cannot scientifically happen unless she had a jetpack strapped to her back and managed to discard and hide that before her death too, she did not answer that phone where it was found and then end up just minutes later being struck by the train miles away. So that's some more information on the cell phone. But we also have the headband and the sneakers that were found in a different location than the phone, right? That's correct. So this expert is saying that based off of the the totality of the evidence, she is saying the possibility that Tiffany was abducted at some point and driven to the location where she was later found dead cannot be ruled out. Due to the remoteness of the scene, vehicles used by first responders to access the scene most likely destroyed any evidence of a vehicle having recently been in this location or any footprints left by anyone prior to the first responder's arrival. And then to your point, Captain, going on to say on August 3rd, she was killed July 12th. On August 3rd at 319 in the afternoon, Tiffany's mother, who never gave up searching for evidence in her daughter's death, found Tiffany's headband and sneakers in a leafy area approximately 15 feet off of a heavily traveled old Tilton Road. Mike Valenti called, so this is one of uh, Tiffany's father's brothers, so her uncle, called the police, who then contacted the detective in charge who proceeded to photograph the area and secured these items. A sweatshirt was also found on the shoulder of the roadway, approximately 15 feet from the sneakers. Photographs of the sweatshirt suggest it was not weathered and may have been recently discarded in the location where it was found. What they're pointing out here is the shoes and the headband being found more than half a month later. About three weeks later. Yeah, very bizarre. They're saying they may not have been there since the night of the death. That they may have been placed there at another time. Much closer to the time that they were found. Yeah, which would be direct evidence that somebody had them somewhere else. A.K.A. a vehicle. Yes, and so what we have here is that sweatshirt that we're talking about. We have Diane, her mother, who's saying that, no, that sweatshirt did not belong to Tiffany. And Diane's also telling this expert that she found a car key tag on the ground near the sneakers, a tag that would commonly be placed on a key when a car is being serviced at a dealership. Diane advised this investigator that the detective in charge, Detective Sweeney, secured the key tag and all items found at this location. So they did the right thing. These items are recovered. Some of them belong to Tiffany. Some of them do not, but they're all collected by the authorities, bagged and tagged. And again, I just don't understand law enforcement's position because as new evidence comes out, these missing items that you didn't recover that were were recovered by the family or somebody else. Yes, you made a ruling, but there's no, nothing that says that you can't say, hey, 
we got some new information and we want to reopen this investigation. Well, and I want to sum up what this expert's opinion is in their report, because the report itself is about 20, depending on how you want to look at it, it's it's every bit of 29 pages, but written by the senior medical exam investigator who's retired, Louise Hausman, her written portion is 19 pages long. So I'll sum it up for you, her conclusion. And it's this, it's stating that multiple inaccurate, apparently self-serving conflicting statements made to investigators by the engineer and his student who turns out was unsupervised at the time of the incident. Remember, he later says his back was turned. So the only eyewitness to this event, this is not in question. This is based off of their statements. The only eyewitness to this event is the student engineer, who this expert says their account factually contradicts the M-I-E-R black box on the train. It's recording everything that's going on with the train. Right. This expert goes on to say that no drug or alcohol test of the student engineer was ever conducted. A sworn statement was not taken from this person until 10 days after the death. Well, and this is a big problem because we know that eyewitness statements are not always that accurate. So you want to get a count of the events as quickly as you can. And that their findings, this expert's findings was that it was improbable that Tiffany would have been able to jump or dive in front of the train. They give a good description here, Captain. It's a distance of 15 to 20 feet into a built-up stone railroad railroad grade from a standing position. So based off of his statement, he says that from a standing position, darted or dove in front of the train. The other one was that stood up in front of the train. But this expert's saying that it would be scientifically incorrect for someone to, in a standing position, make that leap of 15 to 20 feet, given the built-up stone railroad grade. Yeah, it's very strange. This this is some other things that we kind of talked about a little bit, but this is confirmation from an actual expert that states, the head was crushed, brain obliterated, the skull severely fragmented, obscuring evidence of possible anti-mortem injury such as from a gunshot wound. No footwear found at the scene. There is no indication Tiffany suffered from CTE. Investigators failed to interview family in a timely manner. Popular with a close circle of friends, admired by her teachers, coaches, employers, and neighbors. Raised as if she were a single child for the past 10 years by two loving parents and indulged by two devoted sisters, two grandmothers, and many relatives. Received five scholarships for sports and academics, preparing and looking forward to going away to Mercy College in four weeks to play on a collegiate volleyball team and to major in criminal justice. So this expert is reviewing it and says that and I'll read exactly that. Therefore, it is my professional opinion the death of Tiffany Valente warrants further investigation and the manner of death should be amended by the medical examiner from suicide to undetermined. Both of us being huge fans of Unsolved Mysteries, this is how we came across this case. I, I remember watching the episode and texting you about it and saying this is definitely one that you're going to want to watch. It's confusing and... I don't know which way 
I lean some of the times, but I definitely lean towards the idea that if we don't have all the information, if we're finding new evidence after the ruling, that the ruling should just, you know, just dismiss the ruling and continue the investigation. Yeah, this one's really hard to put an opinion on. And so I'll leave my opinion here with this because the way that I see it, Captain, if we're going to apply science and logic to making our determination, is that if that cell phone data, if Tiffany's cell phone data is correct, then there's foul play involved. I, I can't stand here and put my hand on a stack of Bibles and tell you that it's correct. I can only tell you what I've reviewed in the information coming out from others who say that they've reviewed that information. Right. If that cell phone data is correct about that incoming 24 second received call and the data being used on her cell phone by apps after the time that she leaves her home prior to that phone being found, there's no way that she was using her phone at that location and then ended up dead on the tracks four miles away and walked there. It just, you, it cannot be done. It physically cannot be done unless she's like a, like a cheetah or something. It just, I mean, Tyreek Hill could not make that trek that fast. Right. So if that information is correct, then I suspect strongly that there's foul play here. There was some local rumors that maybe two, three, or upward of six people may know what happened that night. The One of the local rumors that was that she was picked up by a, a, a male and two females and uh, made to remove some of her clothing, maybe in a vehicle. Maybe they got rid of her phone. Maybe they dumped her phone after the fact but that she was taken to the railroad tracks and humiliated before she was either killed or pushed in front of the train. Again, those are simply rumors, but my opinion is as said, if, if that information on that phone is as reported by her sister and as is in that report of the retired medical examiner, then foul play has to be involved. Now there was an update. Good, good news. Like, the family kept pushing and the authorities did agree to re-examine or at least test some of the air quotes evidence. I wish now, I had the unsolved mystery update music. I lo- I do love the yeah, update. Because it, it always shocks you. You go, oh, oh yeah. Well, especially when they're airing the case for the very first time. And right. you're like, well, damn, there's already an update. That was, these guys work yeah, fast. These guys. <laughs> but you're like, oh no, we, we recorded the episode a month ago. And then like a week ago, we arrested the guy. We still... We still had to run the the, the uh, story. So listen to this, Captain. This, If you weren't angry, it, it, now is the time, the appropriate time to get a little angry. So remember, they agreed, the authorities agreed to test some of the evidence that they had stored in Tiffany's case. Okay. And here is what they came up with. Closure remains elusive is what we are told, because the new forensic and DNA analysis on those items could only conclude that the New Jersey Transit Police had lost or left to ruin key pieces of the puzzle. The shirt Tiffany was wearing had been stored in a plastic bag tied into a knot where it became covered with mold and scientifically useless. 
Other key items, quote, had been outdoors, exposed to the elements for a few weeks prior to being collected, end quote, making them similarly contaminated, the report found. This is my problem, and this is a growing problem, like I said, in the true crime community, is where people have opinions or they go down a rabbit hole and they get blindsided and they just they put their blinders on and 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 this is the this is the answer that I came up with and I am not going to listen to any other opinions and it seems like in this case I have no reason not to believe that law enforcement didn't destroy these items maliciously because they're so they were so hell bent on not going down any other rabbit holes. The other problem, though, again, goes back to the ruling of the manner of death, because if it with it being a suicide, I don't know how much of an obligation they are under to maintain these items. Very good point. And to maintain custody of this evidence. And we should be seeking the truth. We should always be seeking the truth. It's one of my big arguments with like the West Memphis three case. Okay. So you're going to, you're going to tell me that you're going to release three individuals that you think are responsible for killing three children, but you're not going to keep the case open so we can then figure out who actually did it. You're saying they did it, but you're going to release them out to the public. Makes no sense at all. It's like, if you're going we need to constantly be looking for the truth and not trying to be the one that's raising our hand up and saying, I was right. I was right. And I, I just don't understand what, what the law enforcement has nothing to lose, but a little bit of time and a little bit of effort. If the medical examiner comes back and says, well, based on what we know, Based on the tests we've done, we're leaning towards suicide. We're going to tell the family that and then tell them, hey, be patient with us because we don't want to close this case until we get the information correct. Get all of our ducks in a row, right? Yes. And examine and vet those ducks. So the the Valente family, of course, had a response, a, a statement to uh, the the inconclusive finding of the test that was granted on these items. And they said, look, we were hopeful for a miracle with the DNA testing, especially knowing Tiffany's death from the start was dismissed as a suicide without a proper investigation ever conducted. There is no excuse for evidence being mishandled. And then it goes on to say, we're talking now we're talking about the axe. Remember that the the axe that was found near the scene that had red markings on it? Right. Well, there were hopes that they would test the axe. But the authorities said we could not test test the axe because it's missing. Oh god. The family's response, quote, NJ Transit lost the axe. How do you lose an axe? A spokesman for NJ for the New Jersey Transit declined to comment. Of course they did. A letter to the family's attorney detailing their findings from these newer tests 
state from a laboratory director stated that the packaging and maintenance of the DNA and physical evidence by the New Jersey transit police was not in conformity with acceptable protocols. Again, it's almost like they had their ruling and they weren't going to have anybody tell them what to do. And when they said, Hey, here's this new information. Here's new evidence. Can you test this? Instead of doing so, because they might have got a different result, those items were destroyed or misplaced. And again, it looks like given the state of the the evidence at this time, that the only way that this is getting changed, the manner of death getting changed or amended in this case, or an actual investigation into possible foul play and the death of Tif- Tiffany Valente will be if a witness or witnesses come forward. If anybody has information, again, there is a reward out there for information. Please contact the family's attorney and you can find their contact information on the website, diamantolawfirm.com. want to thank everybody for joining us each and every week in the garage. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading for the beautiful listeners? This week, Captain, we got a little something for your eyeballs and your earballs. Check out our friends over at the Law and Crime Network on YouTube. You're going to love what they're doing. I'm sure you've probably already heard of them or seen them by now. Also, check out their latest, Severed Affair, also available in podcast form. That's Law and Crime Network. Check them out. Tell them the colonel and the captain sent you. You can find that great recommendation, as well as many others, on our recommended page on our website, truecrimegarage.com. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't listen.